Welcome to episode 210 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, oh, brother. How are you? I'm well. I'm well, although it was kind of touch and go there for a day and a half. We'll talk about it, but I'm, I'm doing fine. Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's not tease that anymore. I assume that's wrapped up in an affirmation or denial. So do it you is. want to have dealer's choice and yeah. start us off? I'll start with my denial. So let's don't do take it. this the wrong way, Reform Brotherhood, but uh, I'm denying <laughs> COVID testing. So COVID testing is a great thing. I'm glad that we have tests available where we can uh, determine whether a person is infected with, what is it, Cove 2 SARS-95 or whatever it is. Um, right on. But getting tested sucks. So Friday evening, we're recording this on Sunday afternoon. Uh, and Friday evening, I developed just a really random spontaneous cough. Came out of nowhere. I worked an entire day uh, on the phones. Throat felt fine. And then all of a sudden, it was like 5 o'clock. I went downstairs, got a drink of water. And all of a sudden, my throat like closed up. And I was like, oh, maybe it's allergies. There was a little bit of wood smoke in the air. So I was like, maybe I'm just having a weird reaction to the wood smoke. And maybe it was that, but I, uh, I woke up on Saturday and it was, it had settled into like the top of my chest. You know, that like feeling where like you've been coughing and like your chest just hurts. So I was like, this happened really fast. Usually like an upper respiratory infection doesn't set in that fast. So I called, I work at the hospital, so I have to consult with occupational medicine anytime that I'm ill, especially now I need to call them. So I called and they said, yes, you definitely need to get tested. So I had a test yesterday on Saturday at 11:15 and man you know how like in uh like in elementary school or maybe high school you learn about mummification and how they like shove that rod up in the mummy's nose to like pull the brains out and they put it in <laughs> yes. a jar. Right. That is basically what they do with COVID-19 testing is they just shove a, a giant Q-tip in your nose and just spin it around. And you know, that in itself, it hurts, but it's not the worst part. I think for me, the worst part is um, so, you know, they, they've done all the studies to figure out like it, it's actually more sanitary and efficient for the nurses to use hand sanitizer on their gloves than it is for them to take gloves off and put them back on if all they're doing is COVID testing. So the nurses are using heavy-duty antimicrobial hand sanitizer on their gloves, and then they shove that glove along with a a Q-tip right in front of your nose. And what's the first reaction anyone has when something gets shoved in their nose is to pull back. And then also anytime something that just smells like bitic and acerbic right in your face is to pull back. So it's like this battle of will not to pull back as they're shoving this thing in your nose. So man, I, I'm glad I did it though. I, I was, I was telling Ashley, I felt a little silly this morning when I woke up and felt fine. I was like, man, maybe I jumped the gun. Maybe I should have waited and like saw if I got better, but I was thinking about it a little bit and I'm actually really glad I got tested because one of the things that is a big problem right now is people are starting to get what they're they're calling it COVID fatigue now or quarantine fatigue, where people are starting to be less careful. And so there are more and more people who are running around that are not only carrying the virus, but are actually symptomatic of the virus right. and aren't take, taking the proper steps because they're just sick of being locked down. Um so I'm glad I did it. Uh, as much as I joke around about it being a terrible experience, it, it was relatively quick. It was easy. Uh, my sinuses feel great. It's like it's like a nice clean cavity in there now because they scraped all the gunk out. 
but uh, I'm glad I did it. But man, I wish I can't wait until they come up and they they have a reliable method to do testing a different way. For sure. Do you want to share your results? Did you set all that up? Well, I, I just said like I feel better. I, it was negative, and and I I was I was pretty sure it was going to be negative. Um, I'm not sure if my results got fast tracked because I'm a healthcare worker or if it just was this just the way that it was. I actually got my results in like nine hours. I think I went in at eleven fifteen, and it was like eight thirty when I got my results uploaded onto my my patient portal where I could see them. And then I got a phone call this morning at like eight thirty from the nurse saying my my results were back and it was negative. So I was pretty sure it was going to be. I was pretty sure it wasn't COVID, but I wanted to be safe. You know, we've got high risk people that I see on a regular basis. I work in the healthcare industry. I'm out in the community, right. and as much as we've uh, uh, preached. I mean, I'll, I'll call it that. Like as much as we've preached about being safe and loving your neighbor and preserving life, I felt like, you know, I really would be hypocritical if I didn't get tested, if I didn't take proper precautions, and if I didn't take it seriously. So I'm glad that I did. If you're feeling sick, you should, should talk to your doctor about getting tested. Um, let them make the decision. You know, not everybody who's got a sniffle needs to be tested. Right. Uh, a lot of it depends on your particular circumstances. You know, can you isolate? Can you not isolate? Do you have elderly people you care for? All of those questions are things that your doctor can help you navigate. But if they tell you to get tested, then then definitely go get tested. Even though it's uncomfortable, sure. it's done fast. Um, and, it, you know, honestly, like I slept a lot better last night knowing that I didn't have COVID, knowing that it wasn't something that I was potentially going to give to my wife. Um, not that I couldn't give her this chest cold thing that I had, but like, I'm not going to give her a potentially fatal disease right. because I don't have it. So I'm right. glad I did it. Right on. You're bringing information and inspiration to the masses here. So here's, let me ask, because maybe a lot of people listening haven't known somebody's had the test done yet. They have to go up both nostrils, right? Uh, they've stopped, as far as I know, at least at Dartmouth, they're not doing both nostrils anymore. Um, initially, when they would do the COVID testing, they would do both nostrils and the back of your throat, like a strep yes. test. Right. Um, I think initially they weren't 100% sure where where the virus um, uh, reservoir was. Um, it's interesting because COVID doesn't really affect your nostrils. Like it doesn't affect your upper respiratory tract classically. Like that's not a classic symptom, but that's where the virus tends to get stuck as you're breathing. So that's right. where they're, they're, they're looking for this place where like the virus is getting stuck. Um, so I think they've, they've narrowed down more specifically on where that reservoir is. So they only had to do one nostril. I know some places are still doing two nostrils, I guess at Dartmouth college, um, the, the employees have to get tested every other week, I believe it is, if they're going to be working on campus. And I was talking to your mother today, actually, and she's not working on campus, so she has not had to have it done, but her manager does. And they actually, the employees have to do their own noses. So they go I've in. I've heard of this. And the, the company that's administering the test hands you the swabs, gives you yes. the instructions, monitors you to make sure you're doing it correctly, and then you have to do, and they're still doing both nostrils, probably because it's not a professional doing it. So they're doing right. twice as many swabs to make sure they're getting more samples to test. But yeah, if they had to do both nostrils, I would have been like, just kill me. Just get it over <laughs> with. That's, I'll, just, I'll just lock myself in a room for three weeks and nobody will get sick. 
no, it, it really wasn't that bad. It is it is scary. I know I've heard of people who are refusing it tested because the test is uncomfortable, but it, it is over really quick. I think it was probably less than four or five seconds that the swab That's was great. actually in my nose. It was fast. Um, the lady was professional. She she joked with me ahead of time, but then she got very serious and, and calm. That was really helpful. Um, and then she joked with me afterwards about how, how I was going to be able to smell everything great because my nostrils were all cleared out. So it was good. It was a good experience, even though it was a bad experience. Most people selected this episode thinking they were going to hear some great theology, which will happen eventually. Yeah. But I just have two words, virus reservoir. I bet you didn't yes. see that coming. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a top 50 healthcare firm that we have to, <laughs> we have to keep our reputation going. So man, that's just a gift that doesn't stop giving. It, I, listen, we will take that joke all the way to the very bitter end. Yeah. That's going to be like, we're going to be like the last episode where each, we're going to be like 75 years old. <laughs> And we're going to be like, honor everyone, and we're a top 50 healthcare firm. <laughs> That's it, folks. Oh, it's so great. And who would have known, of course, that be even more relevant now with everything that's going on in the oh, world? Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, what about you? Incredible. What do you what do you got for a denial this week? Well, not nearly maybe as exciting as that or maybe as relevant or helpful, but I, I'm going to maybe jump on the bandwagon just a bit and I'm just going to open Pandora's box and just leave it open and walk away because that's sometimes what we do here. Let's trigger everybody, but let's do it. I'm, I'm just denying against the sense of cancel culture. And I know yeah. that means different things to different people, but I've so recently been convicted by what God gives to us through Jesus Christ in redemption and how redemption is so pivotal and important. And that there's something I think about cancel culture that pushes against even extending grace to those who are outside the family of God, that it seems like it is the purview of the Christian to push against cancel culture. So I'm just kind of denying against that, generally speaking. I have nothing, no incidents, no particular thing in mind, but just to say that we need to allow for space for each other, even those who are non-Christian, I think, to have the opportunity to be repentant in a way and to move beyond, to progress and I think there is a common grace even in progression that sometimes God allows those who are not even the elect to move beyond former views or worldviews or different perspectives to change and to become yeah. more progressive, to become more essentially under the, the lordship of Christ, even if, in a sense, they, they never become elect. So yeah. I'm just seeing that that cancel culture may be particularly destructive, and even I don't understand maybe how destructive it can be. But that I think it just can be really destructive when we embrace it in kind of a foolhardy kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just to be clear, um, there's a difference between personally choosing not to listen to something or to communi- you know, partake of something. Um, there's a difference between like kind of canceling something in your own life or, yes. you know, like refusing to listen to something and then insisting that everyone else in the world also cancel yes. it. And right. cancel culture really is more about shutting something down than it is about removing it from your life. So right. ironically, some of the the people out in the Christian world who speak loudest against cancel culture will exhibit those same exact tendencies when something happens that they don't like. And, and you know, the really interesting thing, and I don't want to get into the specifics, but there's been a lot of controversy with lots of different Netflix stuff that's come out lately. And there's all sorts of calls to cancel Netflix. And it starts usually as like, why don't we boycott Netflix? Why don't we as individuals 
say something to Netflix by not giving them our money to all of a sudden this company needs to be wiped off the face of the planet. Right. And a lot of Christians actually end up buying into that cancel culture without even realizing it, even if they're the ones who are so loud against the idea of cancel culture. So I don't, there are some things that should be canceled. Like right? there are some things in the world that, that is not appropriate for anybody and they should not be out there for consumption. That's different than um, saying that somebody who has a dissenting point of view or disagreement on a particular argument or something like that um, should be canceled. So, yeah, I, I'm totally with you. I think cancel culture can be really, really, really destructive. And it's almost got like an inherent hip hypocrisy to it. I Yes. Think. That everyone, everyone, you want to cancel everyone who disagrees with you. But if the people who disagree with you try to cancel you, then all of a sudden they're being unfair, they're being uncharitable, they're being uh, aggressive. And you don't even realize that like you were just the other day saying that person should be excluded. Yes. And it's weirdly, especially manifest in the online realm. Mm -hmm. Who hasn't said something in a public online space that they regretted? And yeah. if the definition of cancel culture is we take that thing, which may be representative or unrepresentative of their worldview and say, because of that thing, I no longer regard that person. We have a problem. And yeah. so it's more about that. I, I'm more connecting this to, like you just said, the difference between ideologies and persons expressing ideologies. And do we give that person a chance for some type of redemption? Because if we yeah. don't, then aren't we setting them up to be more extreme? And yeah. so I'm, I've just been processing that a little bit and I'm, I'm trying to, marry it against what the scriptures tell us, how God would have us to behave in those environments. Yeah. And I think that we need, as Christians need to be charitable people. We don't need to be walked all over, but we need to be charitable. Yeah. And that line is always, of course, a place of tension, but we should lean into that tension rather than just surrender to it and say, well, I'm just going to shut everything down. So, you know, what's funny is what you just said triggered something for me in a non-extreme way that came out weird. Um, one of the things I appreciate that Mark Driscoll said back in the day, don't, I'm going don't. way back. I'm going you, way back. You're about to say something that you're going to regret. <laughs> that, that might be possible, but here we go. Oh because man, we, Mark Driscoll. We live without a net. So I'm taking a chance is one of the things that he said that was, it was somewhat like agnostic to like theological perspective, but I did appreciate that he spoke at some points a lot about basically like personal legalism versus corporate legalism. Yeah. And so I think that that plays to your point of, there's some things that we we should, as we take inventory and evaluate our lives, the scriptures call us to do, that we should say, I can't participate in that. I can't watch that. I can't read that. I'm not going to play a part in that. At the same time, having a heart of charity for some things with right. respect to that, those same things. So uh, sin is sin, and there is certainly a line. At the same time, I'm not saying that we ought to tolerate certain sins, but we also know or we should know our hearts the best. We should right. be taking inventory. So if there's something that you should not watch or should not view or should not see, that means that you should easily be willing to cancel it for yourself without right. necessarily making it cancel for everybody else. Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah, I can't believe that you just quoted Mark Driscoll on our podcast. <laughs> I don't know how to process that. Well, again, like that's something that I know he spoke about like part and parcel at various points in sermons and talkings and all that kind of stuff. But that for me seemed like he was on the mark for some of that stuff. I think there was an intention there that was helpful, but he yeah. wasn't always helpful, of course. So No, no, he wasn't. And, never mind. We'll talk about Mark Driscoll on a different episode. Biggest understatement, right? Yes. Mark Driscoll wasn't always helpful. 
Yeah, well, this will be the last thing I say, and then we'll move on to my my affirmation. The saddest thing about Mark Driscoll and the whole Mark Driscoll fiasco is that most of what Mark Driscoll said theologically was really, really on point. Yes. And Mark Driscoll's downfall was uh, was moral in his own character. He he had an aggression issue and a pride issue. And um, that was I, and that's not just me saying that that was stated by the elders at Mars Hill Church, who he whom he was supposedly accountable to until he just said, peace out. I'm not doing the discipline thing. Um, and what's interesting, and this I think this underscores the, the pastoral qualifications are primarily quality based or, or uh, character based rather than ability based. There are some ability right. issues, but it, it's character based. Mark Driscoll's theology has shifted dramatically in order to foster a new start in a different venue with people who have different understandings of what the qualifications of ministry are. So it, it just goes to show that like you really have to select pastors based on character, not exclusively yes. on their theological position. Yes. So I like to surprise people. Yeah. Well, you almost just made this a different episode than you intended it to be, but I'm, I'm going to exercise a little bit of my own self-control and move on. Man, Mark Driscoll. Oh, anyway. someday, someday we should do that episode because I think we've we spoken will. about we him kind of like around the center, but we yeah. never got into that. But I think we're also kind of pausing to see, let's see how this all shapes out because yeah. there was so much at that time that was uncertain, undeveloped. Yeah, there's only one way that it shapes out that's good, and that's him retiring away from ministry for the of rest course. of his life quietly. But yeah, yeah, we'll we'll pour a, a couple glasses of scotch at Christmas and turn on the microphone <laughs> and see what happens when we talk about Mark Driscoll. Everybody can look forward to that conversation yes. as, as much so as we are. I'm going to move on to my affirmation because it actually uh, ties into what you just said in in various ways. Um, I am affirming, I watched this, uh, Netflix, ironically, a documentary yesterday called the social dilemma. Have you watched this yet? No. Okay. So the social dilemma is a, is a Netflix production. They call it a docudrama and it really, what it is, is a documentary with a, a dramatic kind of narrative that's woven into the, the documentary. So it's about social networking and social media and the, in, the interviewees are almost all former, uh, executives at various social media companies and they're talking about how not only is it the case that social media is designed to be addictive it's designed to catch your attention that's their whole thing they're selling they're not just selling your data that's too simplistic they're selling your attention so everything that happens on social media on your facebook app on your twitter app everything that's happening is designed to suck you in more and the drama that they portray is this kid basically who's addicted to his phone and they have like this control center that's played ironically by one of the guys from Mad Men who seemed it seemed fitting that a guy who used to play like an ad executive is this like uh, like this control center that's hooking everything into this kid. And it was really kind of convicting because these these um, these executives are saying they understood at the time not only that they were trying to get your attention, but they understood that they were building an addictive platform. They, they knew that this was what they were going for. Right. So it's not as though this was some sort of like design accident that now all of a sudden, which is kind of like what you would, you would think if you listen to like Mark Zuckerberg when he testified before Congress, or when he talks about the stuff that they're doing now with like news censorship and things, they understood at the time when they were building this stuff 
that this was addictive and that was that was a that wasn't a bug that was a feature that's what they sell to advertising companies is that we're gonna we're gonna keep them on their app longer if you give us money than if you don't and it was interesting because one of the guys who was actually like the president of pinterest he said and it was he was kind of joking but then you kind of realize like it's not funny he said that even he who designed these features knew the psychology behind it understood what the goal was even he would find himself sitting down at the end of a day and looking at his pinterest board and realizing that he'd lost two hours and didn't know where it went So even though he understood the psychology behind it, he knew all the tricks, he still couldn't override it in his own brain. And so I'm affirming this documentary. Not everything in there is great. It gets real preachy about climate change for some reason at the end. Like, I mean, it's it's typical. It's <laughs> typical, like progressive hope at the end. Like the world is coming to an end and social media is destroying it and disinformation is destroying it. But if you just do this, like we can progress. It's very typical progressive perspectives towards the end. And I don't even mean like progressive, like progressive issues, just like progressive ideology that like we can make the world better. We can save the world, which obviously only the gospel can save the world but other than that element of it it was very well done it was engaging this drama that happens in the middle of it is sort of strangely compelling because every you know it's a family but and it focuses on this one boy but everyone in the family kind of has their own specific interaction with social media and every i think they do it because you can resonate with one or more of the people in the um in the drama so it kind of sucks you in and hooks you so i would i would highly recommend it it was compelling enough that I actually deleted Facebook off of my phone and my tablet. Wow. Um, so I, I'm thinking very hard, uh, very carefully about social media now because I'm starting to recognize, like, you know, I kind of lament, man, I wish I had more time to blog, for example, or I wish I had right. more time to read theology. Well, I realize that, like, oftentimes I'll get up in the morning with the dog, the dog will go back to sleep, and I'll sit on the couch in my bathrobe scrolling through Facebook for an hour and a half, not realizing that the time is gone, where I could be using that time to read the Bible, to read Herman Bavink. I'd love to finish. I mean, to do all sorts of things, to sleep sure. a little bit more. There's all sorts of things that I could do with that time that are probably more productive. And to tie into the cancel culture thing, what I realized, and this used to happen I, when I was an administrator for the Reform Pub, a lot of times we would get these messages from people that would say like, well, the pub is is toxic. It's only only the arguments that are happening. And we'd say, well, there's there's 10,000 comments a day and not, almost none of them are arguments. Well, what was happening, we figured out, is that the arguments are the ones that were driving the most rapid responses, most rapid comments. So Facebook was assuming those are the ones that everybody wants to read. So those are the only ones that they were presenting to people. Right. So you you automatically, the things that are controversial, the things that are generating a buzz, those things are prioritized. Those are the things that Facebook is going to serve up to you. Um, Not necessarily you know, like the most neutral thing or the thing that actually suits your interest, but the thing that they think is going to keep you clicking on the screen more often. And we would, we would, we would joke as administrators that someone would post like a really well thought out theological question that they'd love to have some dialogue on. It'd be like crickets. And then there'd be like some, some, a vitriolic inflammatory meme that every, it'd be like a thousand comments like instantly. And we'd be like, why, what's happening to our group? Well, what's happening to our group is that Facebook recognizes people's eyes are on the screen with the garbage more than it is with the good stuff. Yes. So uh, watch the movie, make up your own minds, but I- I'm really thinking carefully about whether I want to just bail out of social media altogether. Man, 
That's huge. That's heavy. I love it that. Is. It was, I mean, I was already kind of, th- I was already kind of there. Like just my life has taken a different direction. I don't have as much time to engage in the stuff that I actually like to do on social media, theological debate, that kind of stuff. Right. So I was already kind of there, but um, yeah, it just really, I don't know. It was really convicting in a, in a sort of common grace kind of way. Okay. So this hit me in a couple of different ways. It's possible that I lost focus at least partway through because the question that came to my mind is, are you rocking a bathrobe often in the mornings? <laughs> yeah. You get up, you put on your bathrobe because I got to take the dog outside. I can't go outside in like my underwear. Well, so I'm not sure. Is that a common experience? Like I don't really own a bathrobe. I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess, I mean, it wouldn't be any different if I said I've got, you know, I'm sitting in the, on the couch downstairs, in my pajama pants. I just happen to use a bathrobe. But, but that's what I'm saying is I actually think that is very different. Like I'm not, I'm not necessarily affirming or denying the bathroom. I think that's, that's fine. Like, but also I also kind of like equate bathrooms, like an old school mentality. Like that's, that's kind of like an amazing status that you have a bathrobe and you throw that sucker on when you get up. I guess. I mean, I, I guess. That's incredible. So I call I, it my dad costume because your your father <laughs> commonly wears a bathrobe with pajama pants. Yes, like his. Yes, but, but he's like of a, of a different generation that's and true. era. So like that's I was like, wow, yeah. I'm very impressed by that. Like I actually thought when you were saying that, do I need to get a bathrobe? You do need to get a bathrobe. It's quite luxurious. Oh. Wait, okay. So like, can we go into like let's like sub level? Do you affirm the bathrobe? I do affirm them, obviously. If I denied the bathroom, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be talking about how I wear a bathroom every morning. Well, I wasn't sure if like that, that detail just kind of came out in the course of the story. If you were like, listen, everybody should have a bathrobe. No, I don't want to bind people's conscience. If you don't want a bathrobe, don't wear a bathrobe. <laughs> but bathrobes are great. I really enjoy my bathroom. Uh, this is going to be 40. There's a lot of modularity of with the bathrobe. If you're a little too hot, you can like loosen it up a little bit. If you're cold, you can tuck it in a little wow. more. Wow. There's a lot. There's a lot of versatility wow. there. Okay, see, let's I, I move on to know, let, let's move on. Let, yeah, let's I wouldn't even on. know where to get. Well, let, so let me say this, though, is is in response to like in a more serious way. I really am impressed with this idea of like trying to evaluate what you're talking about there. I'll definitely go take a look at that documentary. And I think it's a fascinating, like after hearing what you just said, how can anybody and I'm, I'm going to say this tongue in cheek, but I'm also kind of triggering in a purposeful way. How can anybody deny total depravity? Because I've read in my own sphere of study or discipline or vocation in terms of like finance, I've read this time and time again, so many studies more than I can honestly count where people have identified cognitive bias and said, here are the cognitive biases. Even the people writing the articles and understanding them cannot help but fall into the own cognitive biases that they've actually enumerated themselves. So here's like the same thing all over again is this idea of like, listen, we purposely designed social media in some ways to be addictive. And yet I cannot help but be addictive, addicted to the social media, which I myself have designed. And I know that it's addictive and I cannot get myself out of the hole. I think that's, that is so much of human nature right there. The fact that we cannot just pull ourselves out of it, even though somebody's saying to you, listen, this is probably not that good for you. It's probably not good for your emotional health. All the comparisons are not really helpful to you to understand life and those, and to love those people around you. You can be like, yes, I know that. And I'm still going to do it. And I'm still going to feel awful about it. Yeah, that's definitely true. So why don't we move on? What are you affirming today, Jesse? Mine's going to be so quick. I'm affirming with an application for the longest time, like many years now, I've really been super interested in the concept of speed reading. 
But of course, not reading just for the sake of like pushing through material, but being able to read more quickly and to comprehend just as well as if you're reading more slowly. So I've been doing lots of research. I've just come across something that I think has existed for a long period of time, but it's called Spreeder, S-P-R-E-E-D-E-R. So if you go to Spreeder.com, it's just a wonderful way. There's an application, but there's also a, basically like a web application. You can download and pay for it. Or you can try this free version. But it's a really interesting way where you can cut and paste a large amount of text and then basically what it does to you, for you, does to you, I guess, is regurgitate this text in either single word or groups of words at a certain speed to help you try to read it more quickly. What I'm affirming with this is, one, I think it's a, a wonderful and worthwhile exercise in trying to understand how you read. But if you think you read fast, this is like a really good test to see like how much <laughs> you can actually consume and retain the information because I think a lot of us think like, oh, I'm a pretty decent reader. I can read at a decent clip. And this just shows you that it's actually a lot more difficult than you think. And I'm not convinced yet on how well this tool does to really help you comprehend, but I think it's a really good practice if you want to get used to reading more quickly and what it is to read it, for instance, like 300 words per minute. This will actually, of course, discipline you to give you a sense of what that speed actually feels like yeah. and whether or not you can handle it. So go to Spreeder.com and try it out because it's super fun and really interesting. Yeah. Well, speed reading uh, is based on the principle that you don't read words. You read clumps of words. Yes. And this will help you practice that skill. What I, I've, I've used this before. I have not found it useful for actually reading documents because most of the documents I want to read, I don't have in like an easy cut and paste format. But you can cut and paste stuff in there and practice your reading skills. Exactly. Practice, practice comprehending three or four words at a time. And then you can translate that into your regular reading. And instead of reading and sub vocalizing each word as you go across the line, you just bounce your eyes to every every set of three or four words and you kind of get an impression of the word and process them as a as a phrase. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I don't love speed reading. Like part of why I like to read is the the experience of reading and it's not, it's not super pleasurable to like process huge amounts of information that way. But, but yeah, it's a good, it's a good app. I have used it before. It's interesting. Well, there's always for me like a romanticism with this because yeah. for me, it's always been about, well, can I get to the point where I read more efficaciously and efficiently? Right. And this is interesting. I'm always trying to explore, like, well, can I do that? Maybe I'm not reading properly because I've actually read several books on this. And there's lots of, like, argumentation about how, like, we read in the same way we're, we're taught to speak. And we just right. internalize that and use that same philosophy. And it's bad for reading. Right. So there's a lot of argumentation around the fact that if we could learn to read properly, not only would more people love reading, but actually they'd read a lot more and they'd understand a lot more. So yeah. if that holy grail is available somewhere where, like, you can read faster understand more because your technique is off i'm all for that so yeah but maybe that's because i'm a giant nerd yeah but that that's the show that's i mean that's us <laughs> but that's the show <laughs> that's just the way it is speaking of the show and the way it is <laughs> we are i think at this point as i like to say knee deep in a series about the lord's supper or communion and we started with getting a sense for what is like kind of the basic understanding of the Lord's Supper. And now we start to look at like the specific details regarding particular views and theological proclivities of the Lord's Supper. And we spoke last week about transubstantiation. And it was the definitive explanation episode on transubstantiation. It was. It was spicy. 
It was a little bit spicy, but yeah. you know what? I'm almost a little bit disappointed. We didn't receive like a lot of feedback relative to the spiciness, which I thought we brought to that episode. Yeah. I mean, we don't have a lot of Roman Catholic listeners. I don't think we have any Roman Catholic listeners. So all of the people who would be really offended just don't listen to the show. So That's true. I wish we They were had like more. pre-triggered. I wish we had more Roman Catholic listeners. But to that effect, we thought it was best then to move from transubstantiation into something at least that reform for call consubstantiation, which seems like the logical progression trying to understand the different views of the Lord's Supper. So by way of like just a quick review, we talk about the fact that transubstantiation is a teaching that during the Mass, the Roman Catholic Mass in particular, at the consecration in the Lord's Supper, which we would call communion, the elements of the Eucharist, bread and wine, are transformed into the actual body and blood of Jesus. Right. And that they're no longer bread and wine, but they only retain the appearance of bread and wine. So there's an actual transformation of substance, hence the name. Right. And this term, like, quote-unquote, real presence, which is often used by Roman Catholics, refers to Christ's physical presence in the form of the bread and the wine that have been transubstantiated into his literal body and blood. Right. And so we're moving in a sense, like I I feel like the next step in this continuum is consubstantiation because we're moving from something that's like holy and particularly related to like this physical substance and something that's like a little bit like, Oh man, can I trigger from the beginning? Is that cool? Yeah. Oh yeah. We're already there just with the title of the show. Really awesome. Fantastic. Cause I know that Lutherans in particular, which we'll talk about would hate the term consubstantiation, but we're talking about like, in my opinion, transubstantiation light. And yes. so that's like oh, yeah, the next, sure. okay, good. I'm glad we're in agreement. The yeah. next version of this. So like, I almost thought like, listen, you love church history. You love like the early fathers. I know that is your jam. And one of the things that I think about when I think of consubstantiation is I feel like it's important for people to know like where this came from, that like what Luther was thinking, like in, in the reformation that there was a transition away from transubstantiation. And so that was in many ways dramatic, but that dramatic result was consubstantiation, which we'd still say is really not far off the mark, but they at that time viewed as very far away from the Roman Catholic practice. So like, I feel like it would be helpful to start with like a little bit of context of like what pushed into that transformation to get us into consubstantiation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so just to, just to set the tone of the the conversation here. The reason that Lutherans don't like the term consubstantiation, um, sometimes people think it has to do with that prefix con, that they they don't like thinking that the the substance is with the bread and the wine. It's actually the idea of substance that they're objecting to. Yes. So I I actually reached out, you know, because we want to be fair and, and we've acknowledged Lutherans don't particularly like this term. I actually reached out to Jordan Cooper, who has a podcast called uh, Justin Sinner. Um, he's a great Lutheran scholar. If you want good information about the Lutheran view on things, his podcast is excellent. And he basically just said like, well, we just call it sacramental union, which, which is true. And that's what they call it, but it's not particularly helpful in distinguishing it from other views. So, so I kind of joked with him. I said, well, consubstantiation it is. And and the reason for that is that we have to have a shorthand way to refer to these views. We have to have a shorthand way to distinguish them. So we're going to use the words consubstantiation as that shorthand to, to distinguish it um, out of necessity. Right. But the reason that uh, they object to the view is not because of the the prefix con, which means with it's actually because of the word substance. And the, the issue was, one of the things Luther was pushing back against beyond uh, what we think of as kind of like the classic um, 
protests of the Reformation, the protests of the certain certain kinds of abuses in terms of indulgences, protests of papal authority. He was also pushing back against an over-reliance on philosophical categories and particularly Aristotelian philosophical categories. And so we spoke last week at length about one of the ways we can tell that transubstantiation is not the earliest view of the church is that the early church would have rejected many of the Aristotelian presuppositions that are required for for transubstantiation to work. And so it might be more accurate, and there's going to be some people who probably don't love me for this, it might be more accurate to say that the predominant view in the early church was actually consubstantiation, in that the rejection of the word consubstantiation and its its opposition to Roman Catholic transubstantiation is actually a rejection of the philosophical underpinnings that supports it, not a rejection of the fact that Christ's physical body and blood is actually present in some way in the the Eucharist meal. The the Lutherans affirm that rad, like wholeheartedly. I almost said radically because I, I don't mean it like radically like it's really extreme. I mean radically like it's at the very core of their theology. That that older use of the word radical, the, the root of their their theology in Eucharist is that the body and blood of Christ is present within and right. under the elements. Right. They reject the idea that the elements themselves cease to be bread and cease to be wine and somehow are transformed into the body and blood of Christ. But instead, and this is why sacramental union is such an important term for them, is they would say that sacramentally... The body of Christ, the blood of Christ is united to the elements in a way where the body and blood are are corporally present, even though they are not apparent to the senses, they're corporally and physically present within and under the elements, which retain their substance and characteristics of blood or of bread and wine. So the early church, those in the early church who affirmed a real corporeal presence of Christ in the Eucharist meal probably would have affirmed something like this. There were, of course, those in the early church who did understand Aristotelian categories and may have spoken of of what's going on in the supper in Aristotelian categories. But we also remarked last week that the Eastern, Eastern Orthodox Church in its present form and the Greek church throughout the history of the church never, never really adopted this, this substance language. Right. Well, the predominant witness that we have in the early church writings is the Greek church. And so they, would, they probably would have spoken of the real presence of Christ somehow mystically in the supper, but they would not have spoken of it and they don't speak of it generally speaking, in terms of a transformation of the elements. They more or less say, well, Christ's body and blood is there, even though we don't understand how, but we, but it's there. Yes. Um, the ones that do speak explicitly do tend to speak of bread and wine, retaining their characteristics of bread and wine. So I think that's important for us to acknowledge, because even though as Reformed Christians, we hold a different view than what I think we have to acknowledge is the predominant view in, in much of the early church, um, it's also the case that the early church was a varied body of, of believers. There was lots right. of different views and some of this stuff. They hadn't quite worked it all out yet. Right. That, and that's a great starting point because I, I want people to realize that I wonder if you and I were in the early church, if we not, we would have also wrestled with this very same thing right. that we're trying to move away from what we think to be an extreme point of view. And we're trying to soften it a bit. We're trying to respect the spiritual component of what's happening in the Lord's supper with. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 
It's hot in here. Jesse's <laughs> laughing because I was rolling up my sleeves and it looks like I was doing it in a very exaggerated way, but that's mostly because I was trying to avoid hitting the microphone in front of my face. No, that's okay. I thought we were just at a gun show all of a sudden. I was like, <laughs> wow, we're just, just pulling them right out. But I'd like to make a segue, but I just can't. There's nothing. But, but this idea that like next to justification, like people should know next to justification, I don't think there was any issue more fiercely debated during the Reformation, the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Right. So although like the Reformers didn't always agree among themselves as to the meaning of the Lord's Supper, they were unified in their opposition, of course, to the Roman Catholic notion of transubstantiation. So, and that was like pressed by two really big disadvantages, which I think we talked about last week. Of course, one like in a succinct way was the idea that the conversion of the bread and the, the wine into the very body and blood of Christ. And then this existence of accidents without a subject. And I won't reiterate right. that because you said that really well. So then Luther comes along and he basically proposes a new mode of presence, this right. idea of the presence, the inclusion of Christ's body in the bread and of his blood in the wine, the coexistence of the bread and the body of the wine and the blood of Christ, which was in generally called like this consubstantiation or synusia coming together. So this idea of, I think you said it best. What is it like the over under everywhere by with and under is the language. Yes. they typically. So that, that's use. like yeah. the formal language. So this change from trans as a prefix to con is, I think like the key to seeing the bread and the wine as the body and the blood of Jesus. Of course, like we said before, the prefix trans meaning change but then when you get to the prefix con, it means this idea of with, which is purporting that the bread does not become the body of Jesus, but coexists with the body of Christ. So the bread is both a bread and the body of Jesus. And the same thing is true of the wine. It does not become the blood of Jesus, but coexists with the blood of Jesus. So that the wine is both wine and the blood of Jesus. And on this side of being able to understand what Luther was saying there, the question I think we have ahead of us is, well, is that an accurate representation of what the scriptures teach? I think that's what we're after in this whole series. What does the scripture teach with respect to the Lord's Supper? And we're trying to evaluate this. What's just so much more interesting, though, is that what's influencing these worldviews is where they're coming from. They're, these men are a product of their times. Right. So they're trying to process the scriptures and say, I'm pushing against what we think to be a heretical view that is like the transubstantiation, but by way of expressing there's a spiritual reality without in some way moving too far away from this traditional reality that we've expressed. Because like the bottom line is in the Reformation, we're still talking about a bunch of Catholic dudes, right? I mean, right. like these are guys that are coming out of that tradition and trying to reassess or create like a new rubric for the theology. Yeah. And you know, this, this might be something that um, some people might object to this characteristic characterization and i i acknowledge that and well and then I'll, let's do it yeah let's do it when you think about the lutheran reformation which was largely driven by luther himself right there's right. a reason it's called why there's a reason why those following luther in the reformation called themselves lutherans and those who were in the same tradition as calvin didn't call themselves calvinists that's a later a later um moniker that the reform took on of Calvinists. And that was kind of like, they just adopted the term their opponents were calling them. Um, Luther as a person was the driving factor of the reformation of the Lutheran reformation. And Lutherans saw themselves definitely while he was alive. And then one of the biggest controversies in Lutheranism happened after he died, they saw themselves as heirs to Luther's theology, right? where the reformed 
was a collection of churches in a geographical area who didn't see themselves beholden to any one person, but saw themselves as a confederation of Christians who were all reforming in the same direction together. So there's, there's a marked difference there. And I'm sure we'll talk about that when we get to Lord's Supper stuff, when we talk more about the reform view in, de- in detail. But it's important to note that Luther, for most of his career, was still trying in many ways to reunite with the, the Catholic Church. Yes, it was exactly. never his goal initially, and it wasn't until later in his uh, in his progression that he accepted the fact that his his reform reform was separating himself from the Catholic Church. And so the Lutheran Reformation, for much of its history, was an evaluation of Catholic practices, and it was it was a, a reaction to. So what I mean by that is they were looking at a Catholic practice and saying, can this Catholic practice be justified from Scripture? Right. If it can, we retain it. If not, we reject it. Where the Reformed tended, following Zwingli's influence much more than anyone else's, they tended to look at it from the, the perspective of... Uh, what is the biblical practice kind of from the ground up? And that's why you have the the Anabaptist movement coming out of the Reformed movement, which is, I think, a dark spot on our, our shared history. But the Anabaptist movement and the Sicinian movement all came out of Reformed lands. And it was because they were starting from a premise of not evaluating an existing practice, but evaluating what the scripture said and building their practice from there. And there are pros and cons to doing both of those, right? There was no uh, Socinian movement or equivalent movement in, in Lutheranism that rejected the Trinity. Like that just right. wasn't a thing. And so there are, there are downfalls to this sort of radical, everything has to come from the Bible. We're not even going to consider a practice uh, unless we can positively build it from the Bible. Um, that's not to say the Reformed don't build their doctrines from the Bible or that the Lutherans don't build their, their practice from the Bible. But the Lutherans started from a place because of their historical context where they were starting with an established practice and evaluating that on its biblical merits. Yes. And the bar for rejecting something that exists is far higher than it is from creating something that's not justified. And right. so the bar in the Lutheran Reformation to revoke or to remove a practice is a higher bar than it was for the reform to say, well, we're just not going to do that. And that plays out. We've talked about it in terms of the regulative principle of worship. Lutherans retain certain elements of Catholic worship that we would reject because the bar is higher to remove that from the liturgy than it is when you're creating a liturgy simply to not include it. And so that's an important factor that we play in here is that the Lutheran perspective on on the Eucharist is not a from the ground up, from the Bible up kind of grassroots theology. Right, right. It's a modification of an existing system um, where the Reformed maintained a practice that was outward, but they they justify that practice from the ground up in a biblical way, both on Baptist and, and um, Presbyterian or Continental Reformed grounds. They build that from the scriptures in a different way. So there is a radical break in, in terms of how the Reformed view the Lord's Supper versus the Lutherans because of that historical positioning. Luther is much more a person coming out of Catholicism and trying to stay in Catholicism. And this is even reflected in our our creeds and confessions. The Lutheran confessions uh, seek in a very significant way to retain more continuity with uh, the Roman Catholic tradition than the the comparable, even in time, uh, reformed confessions of the day. Right. 
Yeah, that's, and I think that's something that we need to do well to remember because there's so much here that is like biblically intentioned. So, and we're standing on the shoulders of people like Luther who were right. willing to confront this particular tradition. And so when he ushers in what we would call the Reformation, he's doing so in a climate in which the elements of the mass, the Catholic mass, the bread right. and the wine could be examined in a purely scriptural light. So instead of transubstantiation, you know, in acknowledgement that there's no apparent change in the in the presence of the the bread and the wine, the doctrine of consubstantiation was formulated to explain what happened to the bread and the wine, to explain why there was no real physical change to these basic right. elements, and why the elements need to be received by faith. Right. So in that way, we see like progression. Like I see progression in there. The question is, has it gone far enough away from what was the original expression? Yeah. And let me, let me just, before we move on, I want to read kind of in their own confessional words, um, what it is that is, is the theology here. So this is from Luther's larger catechism, which is a confessional document in confessional Lutheran, um, bodies, right? So this, this holds the same status in confessional Lutheranism that the Heidelberg catechism or the Westminster larger catechism does. And the question is, what is the sacrament of the altar? Well, that question itself shows you how much closer to the Roman Catholic yes, view for sure. this is to start, because they're still considering it at altar. They don't consider, at least in their early confessional documents, they don't really consider this not to be the Mass. So they still they still retain the language of the Mass. They still retain some of the language of sacrifice. But what it says here, the answer is, it is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in and under the bread and wine, which we Christians are commanded by the word of Christ to eat and to drink. And then he goes down and says, it is the word which makes and distinguishes this sacrament so that it is not mere bread and wine, but is and is called the body and blood of Christ. So it's it's not the case that it's just some... Um, what Luther is trying to do is he's not just trying to find a different philosophical system to justify what's going on. He, he's affirming with the Roman Catholics that the physical body and the physical blood of Christ, along with his, his whole person is wrapped up in this. It's sometimes there's a misunderstanding, both on the Lutheran view and the, the Roman Catholic view that we're just talking about the body. It's, it's just right. the physical stuff. That's not really the case. The body and the blood of Christ being really present means that his entire person, his entire human existence is present in the Roman Catholic view, is, has replaced the substance of the, um, of the bread and wine. In the, the Lutheran view, is added to the, the bread and the wine. But it's the entire human personhood or the human existence of Christ that's being added. And that is what the, is being feasted yes. on, is the human existence of Christ. But what Luther is trying to do is he's trying to go back to the biblical understanding of what it what it is, what God's creative and recreative power is, which primarily, almost exclusively, comes by means of word. So one of the main kind of innovations, or I don't want to call it an innovation, one of the main realizations that Luther has is that God, God does what he does by fiat. Right. Not right. that he doesn't use intermediate means, but when God creates, he does so by declaration. When God recreates in justification, he does so by declaration. There's right. a reason we say that God is the word and not God is the act. Right. God, God is the word. Jesus is the word. He's the father's work in he's the mediation of the father's work in creation. 
is what the word is. That's what Luther is, is talking about. So that's why justification being a declaration is so central to Luther's understanding of salvation. And so he takes that understanding that what God does, he does so by declaration. And he right. takes that biblical principle, which for the most part, the Reformed would affirm, he he cuts and pastes that right in top of his sacramental theology. And so when God says that this is bread and this is wine, but also says this is my body and this is my blood. It can't, it can't but be so. When God says it, it's true. And it's funny because this is really terrible. Not that that's really terrible theology, but this thing I'm about to say is really terrible theology. When I was in high school, my youth pastor would talk about how God can only speak the truth, right? I'm there with you. But what he would say is, if God said all dogs are pink with polka dots, then not only do all dogs that exist now become pink with polka dots, but all dogs throughout history would have been pink with polka dots. So he was, he was sort of a Lutheran. We were in a Lutheran church. So he had certain Lutheran elements. This is a radical understanding of it is that whatever God says is true. And if, if that creates a new reality, then that reality occurs by fiat. So it, it sounds a little strange to our ears to think about the body and blood becoming or the bread and the wine becoming body and blood. But Luther was really committed to the fact that since God said it, it is true. And now where, where the reform go with it, we're like, well, God, God uses metaphors and similes and he uses all sorts of literary, you know, constructions in the Bible all the time. So, so why in this particular area, are we so set on it being absolutely hundred percent literal, but Luther was so convinced. And this comes, this comes and butts up against this desire he has to stay united to the the faith that he's coming out of to in some ways hold a judgment of charity on the vast majority of the Roman Catholic church. One feature. And I think if you listen to, um, if you listen to Luther in real time, which is this new podcast that Ligonier is putting out, or if you, uh, if you purchase the audio book of here, I stand by Roland Baines, you, this will come out loud and clear is that Luther for all of his bluster and calling the Pope a farter and all sorts of names, he also had this weird deep-seated desire to give the Pope and the church the benefit of the doubt. And so a lot of times he writes in a way where he's giving the Pope like a trapdoor backdoor exit to be justified, right? In the early part of the Reformation, he kind of like blames the fact that this is happening on the fact that maybe the Pope doesn't know. And if the Pope did know, he certainly would put a stop to it. Like the 95 Theses actually have in it, and part of its preface is that he thinks he's defending the Pope against the abuses that that Johann Eck is doing. Right. When the bull, when Eck Serge Domine comes, he actually says, I don't think the Pope wrote this. I actually think it was Eck who wrote this. And so he, he, he aims his guns at... Um, he aims his guns at whoever the writer of this bull may be with the sort of hidden premise that he doesn't actually think is the Pope. And so as he's doing his theological reform, he's trying to give all realistically every Christian that he's ever met, every Christian in the West, certainly. And, and in a lot of ways, from his perspective, every Christian in history, he's trying right. to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, well, they got this wrong by relying too much on Aristotle. That That's where the error comes in, is that they're explaining the mechanism wrong. But the reality of the real physical presence of Christ in the, in the Eucharist, that's dead on. And so he's replacing the mechanism, not necessarily the outcome. Does that make sense? Yeah. Again, I think there's a lot there that we can empathize with, isn't there? Yeah. Like if we oh, yeah, were for in sure. a similar situation, we'd be trying to understand what he's doing. And I think that there is something very noble with Lucy's approach, which is, 
When we think about Reformation these days, we actually think about separation, but that's not right. what he had in mind. It right. was reform from within. So he was always trying to preserve relationship to find commonality there while at the same time challenging what he thought to be erroneous thought. So you're absolutely right on, I think. I mean, Martin Luther thought it was frivolous that the Roman Catholic Church would use words like miracle in describing right. transubstantiation. And he said that it's not necessary to talk about the substance of one and the accents of another when we can just affirm the true corporal presence of Christ, as you've said, in, under, and with right. the elements of the bread and wine. That was in many ways like his way of compromise, I think. It was trying to say like, let us bring, well, let us give priority to spiritual consideration of the Lord's Supper rather than this idea of this corporal reality. And so we've already said, like, Luther didn't use the word consubstantiation, which is why in some ways it's still like a byword among kind of the Lutheran tradition. It was really the Reformed Church's attempt to faithfully articulate Luther's view right. by using that term consubstantiation for Christ to be present in, you know, the sense of like, or sub, I would say like substantially present with substantive presence of bread and wine, yeah. which, which gets like weird. Like I've even among my my very beloved Lutheran friends, when we talk about this thing, I find that there's actually like a lot of nuance in how everybody understands yeah. it and how the theology is actually applied, like on the Lord's Day, for instance. But in both the Roman and Lutheran view of the matter, for Christ to be present in his human nature in more than one place at the same time requires the same kind of communion of divine attributes that takes place like between God and the human Jesus Christ. So in right. my opinion... We end up exactly where we ended up in the last episode with transubstantiation. It just takes us like a little bit longer. Like the root is a little bit more circuitous, but we get to the same place. Would right. you agree with that? Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, the reformed objection to um, the, the, the outcome or the end result of the metaphysics of the Lord's Supper is the same objection in reference to Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism is the objection is. You know, we look at the Chalcedonian definition. I'm going to read some of yes. the some of the sections of the Chalcedonian definition up. that we we would point to. We look at the Chalcedonian definition and we see that the attributes of each nature are communicated to the person, but are not communicated to each other. And on the surface, Lutherans would actually agree with that. They would say, yeah, well, of course, the attributes are not communicated to the natures. They're communicated to the person. But in practice and in principle, that actually becomes an issue because the, the Lutheran as well as the Roman Catholic view would affirm that Christ's human person, his human existence is present every Lord's day when the supper is celebrated. So in the Roman Catholic church, every Sunday in most Lutheran churches, every Sunday in some Lutheran churches, it's, it's periodically right. um, is physically present at each altar in its entirety, right? It's not just that, like I said, it's not like Christ is parceled up. His human nature is parceled right. up and divided among the different you know, churches. That in itself would be a problem because just in terms of quantity, there's not enough of his human body, his human nature, which is constrained in time and space. But it's that his entire human presence is present in all of those places simultaneously. Yes. And so it, you know, it's not quite accurate to say that the Roman Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church um, affirms the omnipotence of the human nature of Christ because they don't think that his human body is everywhere present. They would say that only in those specific places, specifically on the altar, and then as the saints partake in their hands and in their you know in their bodies. Um, 
but that's why the Rome, the Lutherans use the term ubiquitous, which more or less means like it's in more than one place at one time. It's it's presence in multiple places. Right. And the Reformed, and this happened in the Reformation, it, it's still a, a live objection to the view. The Reformed look at that and go, no, that's a violation of the Chalcedonian principle, that the, the attributes of each nature are communicated to the person, but not communicated to each other. So I'm going right. to read... The, the Chalcedonian definition, usually we just think of the Christological section. It's actually broader than that. I'm going to read the whole thing because I think it's important. It says, following the saintly fathers, we with we all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same son, one Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity. Right? So right there it's saying the, the, the divinity of Christ is a perfect divinity and the divinity of, or the humanity of Christ is a perfect humanity. Now, one of the attributes of humanity is that it's constrained in time and space by definition. It has a start it, it in, you know, in normal situations, yes. there's a beginning of where my presence starts and where it ends. There's a right. beginning in time of my presence. Uh, presumably at Christians, there won't be an end in time of our presence or physical presence, but for a human physical presence or existence to be infinite means it's no longer perfect humanity because that, that localized presence, that, that time bound and space bound presence is not a bug. It's a feature of humanity. It's built into our constitution and it was built in intentionally. God could have created us in a way where we did not have, um, Actually, no, I don't think God could have now that I think about it, but it's not a bug. It's just an, it's the way it had to be. It's the way that a creaturely existence is. Um, so in a sense, you'd have to convert Christ created human nature into an uncreated human nature, which is no longer a human nature. And then it says here, um, I'm going to skip down a little bit. It says, uh, that the only begotten Lord Jesus Christ is acknowledged, quote, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo no confusion, no change, no division and no separation. At no point was the division between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same only Lord, Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ. So to boil that all down, when Christ adds to himself a human nature, he as a person takes on all of the attributes of that human nature. He as a person becomes time bound. He becomes space bound. He becomes finite without losing as a divine person, his infinite untime bound and unspace bound uh, characteristics. Right. So what the Lutheran view has to do is they have to sort of transfer a little bit of that omnipotence, right? It's like, yes, it's like the absolutely. human nature takes on a little bit of that omnipotence, yes, the ability to. to be in more than one place at one time. And to be fair, they do have some intriguing ways of trying to argue that this takes place from the scriptures. They point at the fact that it seems as though Jesus can kind of teleport from place to place. He can appear when he wants to, he can change his physical appearance such that Mary doesn't recognize him. He seems to be able to walk through a locked door when he greets the the disciples in the upper room after he is resurrected. So they point at these, these places in the scripture where it appears that Christ's human nature, that Christ operating as a human does not be appear to be operating according to the ordinary means that humans operate. He doesn't appear to be operating that same way. Does that all track with you so far? Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. I mean, I have two, just two words for that. 
monophysite heresy. <laughs> but like, yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's where we tend to go, right? But right. I'm with you in that, is that this is, there has to be some theological gymnastics to get around that point. But I think where you're going is fair. I think we need to be very transparent with our ability to evaluate this argument logistically and theologically. And that is, you have to posit everything that we just said. I, I don't think... I don't think like the even the staunch Lutheran would would be upset with what you said. They just say, "Well, I have explanations for that." Right. But where I think you've gone is totally appropriate. Yeah, and so so I want to acknowledge that they do utilize biblical examples of Christ's body operating according to what seems to be different principles. Right. But the response to this, because it's funny, because I you know I I frequently will get would get this objection kind of levied at me where people would talk about it and say, well, like, well, how does Christ's body pass through a wall? That doesn't seem to be a problem for the Lutherans, right. but, but it seems to be a problem for the reformed. And it's funny because Calvin, I, I don't know where it is. I've heard this. I think that it's true, but I haven't been able to actually locate it. He actually, at one point says that Christ climbed in through the window because he's trying to retain <laughs> su- supposedly this may be yes. a prophet apocryphal. Like I said, I haven't been able to locate it, but it would not surprise me. He's trying to retain this real limitation, this real distinction between Christ's human nature and how it operates and Christ's divine nature and how it operates, or rather how Christ operates according to each. And one thing I would say is, well, okay, let's, let's take those, those kind of three examples at one time or individually, right? Being in two places at one time or kind of teleporting from place to place. Well, we think that Philip did that, right? Philip, when he goes with the Ethiopian eunuch, he's there. And then it says the Holy Spirit took him somewhere else. And it seems like what the text is saying was he kind of miraculously was transported from one place to another. So that's one, one way that Christ could have gotten in the locked room that his human body could have gotten in the locked room is that the Lord miraculously transported him from one place to another. That doesn't seem like that big of an issue for God to do. The other option would be that the miracle was actually in the way that the wall was structured. Right. You know, it's funny because sometimes people will say like, well, when you're sitting on a chair, you're not actually touching the chair. And on like a atomic level, that's true is my <laughs> atoms are not fusing with the chair. Right. There's a right. there's a resistance and that resistance is keeping me separate from the chair, but is also keeping me lifted up by that uh, opposition. Well, God could have arranged all of the atoms so that Christ's physical mass could pass through the physical mass. That wouldn't even actually need to be a miracle. It would just be like an interesting coincidence that got arranged. So it could have been a miracle where God transported Christ's body. It could have been a miracle where God changed the substance of the wall, ironically, in the current context of the conversation, changed the substance of the wall <laughs> or the arrangement of the wall. It's possible. One pe- Some people have you know, supposed that Christ just walked in with the disciples and they didn't realize it. And so when it says they appeared, he appeared to them, he actually just revealed his presence, which guess what? That happens in Luke. That's exactly what happens sure, when he, you know, sure. so there's all sorts of explanations that don't require us to posit that somehow Christ's human body took on divine characteristics. So all of that to say, while the Lutherans do have certain biblical evidences and certain biblical arguments that they use, they even have some church history arguments. Cyril of Alexandria, whose theology was really foundational in what became the Chalcedonian definition, says some things that actually really sound a lot like what Luther says about the supper. Cyril of Alexandria also is sort of seen as a monophysite. And the Chalcedonian definition is, in a sense, a correction to some things that were seen as overly, overly uniting the natures in Cyril's theology. So all of that to say, I respect their arguments. But at the end of the day, I just don't think they hold water in terms of a biblical 
defense. I think that's like a fair, at least point to pause our conversation in this episode because I'm with you. I think that's what it's left up for everybody who's listening. I'm sure these are reasonable people and our brothers and sisters can evaluate what we talked about here. I hope that this again is in some ways, most of what we try to accomplish with these types of series is to provide a primer, is to get some more conversation, to get you interested in looking at these ideas and get a a baseline and then to do more detailed and nuanced research on them. But I end up with the same place that, that you do. I never anticipated when we started all of our conversations that there would be so much talk about going through walls, and yet <laughs> that's we seem to end up there a lot of the time. We do. It's it's like it's like a big thing. Although I don't think Jesus busted through the wall Kool Aid Man style, which is usually no. what you're talking about. No, 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 for sure. But it's it's these things matter, right? That's what's so brilliant about trying to understand people's theology with the Lord's Supper, because yeah. here there is no. So it's almost like. Would it be fair to say that when we start talking about the spectrum or the continuum of perspective on the Lord's Supper, that almost at one end, there is something that's literal and the other end, there's something that's figurative and we're moving more in that direction. So we're moving away from the sense of like literal transformation or transubstantiation and something that's a little bit more nuanced, but we're not quite fully nuanced here. We're not talking about just pure figurative representation. By the time we get to like Zwinglianism, we're all the way at the other end. And that's fascinating to me because all of those things not just dictate how we feel about theology, but they actually dictate what we do with these physical elements that God has given to us and how we understand how we literally like imbibe and consume them. And then how we understand their spiritual impact in our lives. This is like, I don't want to say it's just like really different territory theologically because it's different to talk about like, what does justification mean? Like we can't put our finger on that in the same way we can say like, well, here you have bread and wine in front of you. What are those things? Yeah. Like that's very different. Yeah. So this is like a, just a beautiful place. I think to have some wonderful conversation with loved ones who are in the family. So I hope people are getting like a little bit fired up running through walls, if you will, to go after this conversation with others who maybe have different perspectives or maybe don't have fully or perspectives. Yeah. Here's the time. Wrestle it out. Think about it. Try to understand and articulate what your theology is on these matters of the bread and the wine or the grape juice. Yeah. Or the grape juice. We'll talk about that too eventually, I'm sure. Yeah. So I think at the end of this, like, can I tease this? You and I haven't talked about this. I think at the end of the series, I don't know if it's going to be like seven episodes or 700, but... Whatever the end is, we need to do the episode where we talk about like all the questions that people have or the, the little yeah. like funny things about communion that we've talked about. Like, yeah, let, let's do this. I'm going to I'm going to see your <laughs> surprise episode announcement. And you're about to raise one. me, aren't you? What I want is I would like to do a question cast episode that is oh. exclusively questions about communion, about the Lord's Supper. So we probably have at least two more weeks of planned content. And I say plan in that we're planning on doing two more weeks. Not that we have any idea what the content is going to be yet because we don't really. But we're going to do at least two more episodes of us talking about the theology. So you've got two weeks now to, to call in or email in your question. And then we'll do an episode that's entirely a question cast about Lord's Supper, communion, that kind of stuff. So send your questions in. If we get enough of them, uh, we'll do a question cast. And I want to do this. I have a copy of Jordan Cooper's book, which is called The Great Divide, which is not just about Eucharist theology, but is, is a it's a compare and contrast about reformed theology versus 
uh, Lutheran theology. Right. And I want to be transparent. I don't think that Jordan does a particularly good job of describing the reformed position in this book, but he does an excellent job of describing and defining the Lutheran position. And that's actually primarily what the book is about. He spends most of his time describing and defending the Lutheran view, and then he kind of contrasts it to the reform view. And I think he's really contrasting it to some, some misunderstandings of the reform view. But if you are a listener who really wants to know more about Lutheran theology, here's the, here's the task. Here's how you get this book. Send in an email to info at reform brotherhood, not just saying I want the book, but explaining why you should be the person who gets the book. And I will send it to you. We'll cover the shipping. It's a used copy. It might have my notes in it. I don't know whether that increases or decreases the desirability of the book, but I'll send it to you. It's still in good shape. It's still very much readable. Wait, hold on a second. Am I eligible for this? Sure. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That made me laugh so much. Like it just gave me like a tickle in the back of my throat. It did. It's true. My goodness, I'm definitely going to apply for this and I'm going <laughs> to create like a fake email account and send it in. Well, I was going to say that Jesse and I will decide who has the winning <laughs> entry. But now that Jesse has displayed his obvious bias, I think I need to recuse but, him from but the But here's decision. the thing. You and I regularly have this experience where like one mainly this usually happens more where you have already done this. Sometimes I've read something that's of interest to you, but like. We'll talk and I'll be like, oh my gosh, I really want to read that thing. And you'll be like, oh yeah, it's amazing. You should definitely read it. And then you'll be like, yeah, I have a copy. You can take a look at it when you're here next. Like th- that just happened in real time. Like I've always wanted to read that because I think that would give me like a different perspective. I'd like to hear it come. Like, is it, I don't want to say, I hope this is not rude, like straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Like just to get right. more of like a really robust and fully or perspective on that. Yeah. And uh, I trust him in terms of like the representation of that perspective. So it's great to have people in your life that you say like that, you know, will accurately represent a worldview that you know nothing about or very little about or haven't like, let's say, immersed yourself in by way of practice. So that was that book for me. And now you've just thrown it out to like everybody else. And so now we're going to modify this and say, (laughs) Jesse's going to read it and then he'll send it to you. So you'll probably get it sometime (laughs) in like March or April. There's also a really good book that Carl Truman uh, was a co-author on. He wrote The Reform Perspective. I believe The Lutheran Perspective was presented by Robert Kolb, who's uh, kind of a classically known mm. Lutheran scholar. Uh, I think it's called Between Geneva and Wittenberg. But it, it's a, that's also a very good representation. If you're looking good. for something that has that a more robust presentation of the Reform view, or if you have a Lutheran friend or family member that you want to give a copy of a book to, to sort of explain your position in contrast to theirs, that's a better choice than, than Jordan's book. Um, but Jordan Cooper is a great resource. So yes, Justin Sinner is a great uh, podcast to listen to if you're interested in, in understanding reform theology. Um, again, and, and I've said this to Jordan's face, I don't think he does so great at representing the reform view. I think he buys it. He, he really tends to, present James White as though James White is the reform view. And that's really not the case in a lot of ways. Right. Um, but uh, he, he's a very good crisp Lutheran scholar that I think you can trust. Yeah, that's okay. Like that's the beauty of it, right? That's our job. Like let right. us respect and present what is a reform view, but let's right. hear from others who really know their own view particularly well. And I think that he's definitely like, he's firmly on the L train, right? So right. Oh, yeah. let's let him be on that train and let's try to understand from him what it means to have a ticket on that and uh, a ticket to ride. If you will. To ride the L train? The L train. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I think we probably should let this 
settle down and we can get on with our days. But, uh, you know, Jesse, I appreciate you suggested this uh, series. I'm excited to talk about uh, the views we're going to talk about in the future here. I think next week we'll probably do the Zwinglian view. Oh, yeah. Uh, even though, as we'll find, it's not quite accurate to call it the Zwinglian view because Swingly probably would have rejected much of what has become the <laughs> Zwinglian view. But that is for next week. So until then, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.